Welcome to Growing Up Skywalker. My name is Anna. And I'm Sam. And we are back. Happy Tuesday. Today we are talking about The Phantom Menace Part 2. The Phantom Menacing. The most menacing. <laughs> the most menacing. So we left off right where uh, Qui-Gon climbed aboard the ship after being chased by Darth Maul across the sands of Tatooine. Badass. Pretty badass. And he's like, Run. So here's a quick plot recap of what happened this time. First, they fly to Coruscant, the capital world of the Galactic Republic. They being Qui-Gon, Padme, Anakin, Obi-Wan, R2. I mean, who, who's not on this ship at this point? This is the A-list Nubian ship. Jar Jar's on there. Uh, Watto's not on there. Shmi also not on there. So this is a pretty good ship. Yeah, it's got everyone on it. Uh, they fly back. They meet up with Senator Palpatine of Naboo, who does his political maneuvering. And then they present Padme or Queen Amidala to the Senate, where she makes an argument in the Galactic Chamber for, you know, a cessation of hostilities. And then a bunch of politics things happens and she invokes a vote of no confidence in Chancellor Valorum. Which we should add is entirely due to Senator Palpatine's meddling. Yes. And then she decides to head back to Naboo to resolve the situation. Well, it's to be with her people, right? She's starting to feel extremely anxious that she's not able to be there and witness if her people are okay or not. Mm -hmm. In fact, there's a fun line where Palpatine says, uh, you know, why are you going back? And she says, my people are suffering. My fate will be the same as theirs, mm. which is going to echo later on in the in the movies, which mm-hmm. I think is very funny. Mm-hmm. While that's happening, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan give their report. And then they just are like, okay, peace. And Yoda's like, anything else? And they're like, oh, yeah, we picked up the chosen one, Anakin, because his midichlorian count is like, whoa. So uh, they bring him in to be tested. And they decide that they are not going to train him because he is too old and he has much anger and fear and hate inside of him. So he's being tested by the Jedi Council, right? Yes. So they're asking him to use the Force to sort of do these... um, They're they're like psychic puzzles. They'll like hold up a card and see what's behind it. Yeah. But meanwhile, they're completely like inside his mind, figuring out how he feels about the things he's looking at, because it is about emotions. The control of emotions is really what being a Jedi is all about. So they fly back to Naboo after learning that Anakin is not going to be trained as a Jedi. So Qui-Gon's like, well, how about you just watch everything I do? Why don't you just tag along like you were my Padawan, but we're just not going to call you my Padawan. Yeah, He's got like two ducklings following him. It's Obi-Wan and Anakin. So they fly back to Naboo and meet up with the Gungans. The Gungans have left their eminently defensible underwater city that is completely robot-proof and moved to the jungle. Uh, whereupon the royal contingent meets up with them and starts negotiating with Boss Nass. Padme is sick of this and says, I am the queen, actually. And they bow before Boss Nass. Boss Nass uh, decides that that's good enough. Well, we can talk about this. I think it was a little bit more complicated than that. In fact, I think it was more along the lines of the Gungan leader finally feeling like 
the humans of Naboo were respecting his sovereignty. Definitely. But the the point is the same. The mm-hmm. Gungans decide to throw in their lot with the humans. Whereupon Padme comes up with a 16-part plan to take over the planet. With, As any diplomat would. Yeah, right. Which involves uh, splitting her forces into like five different elements uh, that all must occur simultaneously. One of them is the Gungans are going to f- move their eminently defensible swamp fortress out into a field to go fight the droids in a pitched battle. The um, royal dignitaries are going to go to the castle and try to take over the throne room and take Newt Gunray, the leader of the Separatists, hostage. Meanwhile, the pilots are going to take the fighters and fly up and try to blow up the massive Luker Hulk ship, which is controlling all the robots. And if any one of those parts doesn't work, none of it will work. Fortunately, it all works out. (laughs) With one glaring omission, which is Darth Maul has followed them here. Uh, Darth Maul meets them uh, in the hangar, and Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan split off to fight Darth Maul. So now you've got a four-part fight going on. Darth Maul versus Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon. Padme and the royal contingent taking the castle, and Jar Jar, now promoted to a general, taking over the force, well, fighting with the Gungans in the field. Which is essentially the last third of the movie, at least. Yes. And in the meantime, Anakin sneaks aboard a Naboo N1 starfighter, and Qui-Gon says, stay right there. And it gives him a little nod, a little wink. Don't Which leave that cockpit. Is so delightful because he does not leave the cockpit and manages to get into so much trouble. Yep. He, uh, Anakin flies up. He blows up the Luker Hulk from the inside. He blows up the reactor, the main yeah. reactor. He blows up the control ship for the battle droids mm-hmm. that are fighting the pitched battle with the Gungans. Which is good because the Gungans have uh, broken after having a very cool battle where they have a big shield that is then this tank proof, but not infantry proof. And then, uh, to be fair, the battle droids are pretty scary mm-hmm. in in the prequel movies. In the Clone Wars, they're a little bit less um, intimidating. But when they kind of unravel themselves, when they drop down from from their storage container, they're pretty scary. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's the point because they're cheap too. Mm. <laughs> uh, and then finally, Queen Amidala manages to through. Double decoy trickery, take Newt Gunray into her possession. However, during the fight between Darth Maul, Obi-Wan, and Qui-Gon, Obi-Wan gets separated off. Qui-Gon and Maul fight. And Maul defeats Qui-Gon. Then Kenobi busts in. He gets defeated as well, but not lethally. He falls down a pit. He force leaps up, grabs Qui-Gon's lightsaber, slashes Darth Maul cleanly in two, giving him a 50% off, and Darth Maul falls down to the bottom of the reactor. And that's pretty much the movie. Uh, Palpatine capitalizes on this opportunity to become the Chancellor. He's got the votes for it. And then at the end, they 
celebrate through a huge party, a little bit of funeral for Qui-Gon. And there's sort of a symbolic uh, sharing of power between the humans of Naboo and the Gungans. Right. And then one last bit of denouement is that over Yoda's objections, uh, Anakin is to be trained by Obi-Wan. Brand new Jedi Knight just passed his trial. Mm Obi-Wan made a promise to his deceased Jedi Master that he would train Anakin come hell or high water. And he sets out to do just that. Sam, what did you think about the second half of Phantom Menace? You know, uh, I loved it. I I love a lot of it. I I was a little snarky in the description of the battle scenes. Um, I'm continually reminded of something that I say whenever I'm doing uh, like DMing a science fiction campaign for my D&D crew of your laser misses because their counter laser is better than your counter counter laser or something like that. Like the countermeasures, like all these things kind of counteract each other. And I think that the Gungans marching into battle in a nice, beautiful field, which, you know, obviously is just done because the CGI necessary to do it in a jungle is ludicrous. Uh, But when you first watch that, it is a very exciting battle. Very cool. I could not believe the instant Black Panther Wakanda vibes that I got from this battle scene. Which is because you watched them in the wrong order, because (laughs) Black Panther totally cribbed that 20 years later. Exactly! Well, that's what I was thinking, (laughs) is how influential, because the the resemblance is unmistakable. Oh, definitely. With the force shielding... Mm -hmm. And the force shields that block... Yeah, with the force shields, with the pitched battle on the grassy field, it was an unmistakable resemblance. Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking just how wildly influential this movie was to filmmakers even 20 years down the line yeah it also this watch through i caught a lot of elements of roman warfare which i find quite interesting so the romans would do that they'd plan on like and and this is all medieval warfare is you kind of pick a spot to fight because you are only moving at the speed of a walk you know so you kind of send runners to the other guy and you're like, hey, this is a good spot to fight. Let's fight here and then decide how the battle's going to go. And that's kind of how this went. The uh, Gungans had a big formation that was impervious to outside stuff unless the droids got in, which negated their main advantage because the droids had all those tanks and the tanks were worthless until they got until they were able to get close. So they were relying on their droid infantry. They had tons of droid infantry, but the droid infantry, the battle droids are kind of garbage. There are just a billion of them. You know, uh, the space battle, it's the, this is, you know, the first, if you're watching it in this order, the first Star Wars space battle. And there's a mm. lot going on. It's very cool. Uh, and then finally, this is definitely in all of the Star Wars canon, one of the top five lightsaber battles. Good Lord. That this lightsaber battle. One. And the song, Something so- of the Fates. So the final lightsaber battle between Qui-Gon, Obi-Wan, and Darth Maul, the thing that struck me, like hit me in the face was the level of classic film composition Mm. and classic film tropes in that final lightsaber scene. You've got Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon in their light color tunics. You've got Darth Maul in black. So you've got white versus black, light versus dark. You've got these Gregorian chanting 
wails mm-hmm. in the background and the dramatic sweep and the tension and the pause and then action and then pause and then action was masterful, which I can attest to because I was sweating (laughs) and yelling at the screen for the entire scene. Let's talk about that battle a little bit more because I I love it. There's a few things that are echoed later on, a few things that are really compelling the first watch through. So in the very first scene of Phantom Menace, when uh, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan are hit by the destroyers, the Droidicas for the first time, they sprint off super fast, right? And that's the first time in the Star Wars chronology that you actually see them do cool stuff. We see Luke do some big jumps and like decent falls. Like he's just like, oh, it's a 20 foot drop. I'll just drop off of it. But seeing people run at super speed or seeing Obi-Wan be like, oh, that's 50 feet up. I'm going to jump it. Very cool. But when we first see Maul in the hangar on Naboo and uh, Qui-Gon's like, go on, we got this. Oh, so good. And then this is going back to something from our previous episode, how you learn from your mentors. Mm. Um, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan both shrug off their robes, and it's a running joke in Clone Wars how how many robes (laughs) how many robes Obi-Wan goes through, because every time there's a fight he's just like, let me just strip this off. It's like, dude, you know, you're going through a lot of robes. Let me slip into something more comfortable. But they both slip off their robes and go into this fight and they're jumping, they're doing extremely high speed and Ray Park playing Darth Maul is extremely acrobatic. He is extraordinary. Mm -hmm. The choreography for Mm -hmm. Darth Maul's fighting style is flamboyant and full of flourishes and it's fast and it's terrifying. At one point towards the end, his lightsaber gets cut in half and he's using instead of his... Uh, so, first of all... First you, of all, double saber oh my from gosh. Darth Maul. As a little kid, the first time you see that, because you know, you're a kid and every stick you pick up is a lightsaber. And then it's like, zoom. And then the other side comes out, zoom. And you're like, whoa, that's cool. I gasped. I gasped. Yeah. yeah. It really cements his... Uh, it really escalates the situation to make him a very scary bad guy. Oh, I think the fact that you see Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan kicking butt for most of this movie, and then the two of them combined are not enough to take down Darth Maul mm-hmm. is legitimately terrifying. Yeah, for sure. The fighting styles that they all fight with are are very cool. I There's, there's footage that exists of them... Uh, doing the fight choreography for this and like fighting together with uh, blunts. And it's very cool. Very athletic. Uh, Ian McGregor talks about how he's like actually been in good lightsaber fighting shape ever since this movie. Cause he got really into it, really, really into it. And what really struck me was how athletic Qui-Gon Liam Neeson is in this role. Mm-hmm. The athleticism of him ducking and spinning and twirling and the beauty of that form Mm -hmm. was really fun to watch and i liked that contrast very much between darth maul's fighting style and the fighting style of qui-gon which obi inherited from qui-gon well so in this case um 
I'm not sure about what fighting style Darth Maul is using, but Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon are using Ataru fighting style, which is a sort of a striking fighting style, which is really designed to incapacitate your opponents quickly. And there's some really cool moves that Qui-Gon does, uh, even against Darth Maul, where he like knocks him off a ledge because he gets in really close and then just like elbows him in the throat. It's like, you wouldn't expect someone with a lightsaber to elbow you in the throat. That surprise, that uh, improvisation is is really good. And it goes to show, I think, Qui-Gon being an exceptional Jedi because he's there to get the job done. He's not there to like be particularly flamboyant he's seeking he's following his path he's trying to do the best he can but he's you know he's not willing to throw a few bows it is so striking uh in the second half of this fight scene when obi-wan is separated from qui-gon by the force shields yeah they're plot devices i believe that's their official name he's separated by the plot device (laughs) oh my god it's hilarious. Uh, Qui-Gon is also separated from Darth Maul by yet another plot device. Mm-hmm. And Maul is pacing back and forth like a panther, like mm-hmm. a caged tiger. And Qui-Gon kneels down and meditates. And when I tell you my heart went pitter-patter, oh, oh, oh. It was amazing. That calm in the face of danger. Good lord. Jedis are the coolest. Facing adversity with serenity is what Qui-Gon is all about. So that's a that's a very cool fight, and it does bracket the rest of what's going on, and then it also ends it. So um, what did you think about this space battle? This space battle was a lot of fun. There's actually a deleted scene on Disney+, Plus, um, which I think... I'm really sad that they cut it because I think it brackets the space fight really nicely, mm-hmm. which is Anakin and R2 slip into the main control ship mm-hmm. of the Trade Federation. Yeah. Anakin <laughs> blows up the main reactor, manages to escape, ends the entire battle. And in this deleted scene, he is shown all of the... Just the Naboo starfighters. All of the pilots of the Naboo starfighters say, yep, we're all accounted for. So who was in charge of blowing up the reactor? And Anakin pulls up in his little ship and he's like, I'm not going to get in trouble for this, am I? (laughs) It was such a delightful little one minute clip where it was just so fun to see this precocious nine year old end the battle and do it in a really cocky, delightful fashion. Now, to put a little bit of a shadow over this part of it, I there's moments where Anakin, as a child, is like, uh, particularly when he's sitting in there, he's like, okay, I'm going to, these droidicas are shooting Padme, I'm going to stop this, how do we do this? And he starts pressing buttons, he's like, oh no, that's doing the wrong thing, but it really looks like he knows what he's doing, actually. Oh. Which is also foreshadowed when they fly into Coruscant, and Rick Ole, who's the, uh, pilot of the royal freighter he's like telling anakin where all the controls are and anakin is like already knowing what the controls are he's like oh those control pitch because anakin knows how to fly he knows how to fly a pod racer and he's like okay these are the controls you need to fly a starship so he's you know he sits in the ship he's like okay i won't leave the cockpit oh no oh no it's starting by itself oh no my helmets come on oh no i'm blasting oh no here's the trigger release like he kind of knows what he's doing and is lying about it which is you know but it's is that what's happening it's it's a very subtle subtle thing 
It's impossible for me to watch the prequels without seeing everything as foreshadowing. And that's something that's been difficult. Uh, that's that's something that's difficult about watching it in the release order as opposed to the chronological order. Mm. Because if you watch, and this is your first experience with Anakin, then you're like, oh, he's a precocious kid. And then he has his situations in episode two and three. And then you're like, oh, man. And then there's further denouement. But if you watched episodes four, five, six, and then you watch this one, you already know who Anakin is. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a difficult thing to move around with in your head because you're kind of seeing darkness in his every action or a foreshadowing of darkness. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Everything that Anakin does, I'm scrutinizing Mm -hmm. because of course, having now seen the nine main feature films, I know where he ends up. He's kind of a big deal. He's kind of a big deal. And everything feels like the beginnings of the cracks in his foundation, even at nine years old. Which is an interesting way to like look at your own life or look at like other parts of other people's lives. Like you're going through, it's like, is this the moment where they turn into a Sith Lord? You know, like, oh my God. Because <laughs> you can never tell with people, like, what is the straw that breaks the camel's back? So it does make sense that Qui Gon and Obi Wan and Padme see the good in him because. They still see him at that stage. To this point, Anakin has done very little for any reasonable person to consider or even suspect that he could be dangerous. Even with Yoda's premonitions and Mm -hmm. saying that he senses great danger in this boy, to this point, there is so little evidence that Anakin could become what he becomes. Yeah. And as a viewer, I think you're reaction to this cocky, extremely talented nine-year-old, mine was kind of to protect him. Yeah. Which I think is Qui-Gon's reaction as well. For sure. There's also a sort of a therapy thought here of like your family, which is what Padme and Qui-Gon and and uh, Obi-Wan are to Anakin, they will always see you as the version of you which they have the most control over. Mm. And so they probably see him as this version, who is the hero of pod racing on Bunta's Eve, who is the hero of the Battle of Naboo, where he blew up the enemy control ship. And then, you know, if you start someone off at that high, it takes a lot of work for them to break that down. Mm-hmm. I'm realizing we've talked not at all about Padme. So let's talk about Padme. Let's talk about Padme. So she uh, is awesome. <laughs> this this half of the movie, I think she's awesome. You're right. You're right. I think we didn't talk about Padme in the first half of this movie because she is a subdued character. Mm-hmm. So uh, when she pops out and so, so having watched this movie a couple of times, it's trying to find the difference of when Kiera Knightley is playing versus when Natalie Portman is playing the queen because it's it's slightly different. They have weirdly similar bone structure. Oh, yeah. And also uh, Natalie Portman dubbed over all the lines. So okay, the voice that is helps. The same. That helps. But it is the, the subtlety in playing them is is different. And then that moment where Padme comes forward and she's like, okay, I'm Padme. I'm the queen. I've been forced. I've been like letting this situation develop. And now is the time to strike. Then she puts together the whole plan that pulls everything together. 
And she is the tip of the spear for this plan. It's like her, a couple of handmaidens, Captain Tanaka, and some dudes with blasters. And they're just like, let's take the thing. The moment when the Trade Federation is going to capture her and her team, Mm -hmm. and then her decoy runs by, and they say, ah, this one's a decoy, pointing at Natalie Portman, and Mm -hmm. they follow her dressed-up ornamental decoy. Mm -hmm. Natalie Portman, as Padme, pulls out a couple of blasters and just starts blasting. From, like, her throne, where she's like, yeah, of course I keep throne blasters. Do you not? That's what's cool about Padme in this part. And like when the scene where like she blasts a, or Captain Tanaka blasts a hole in the wall and they're like, all right, this is taking too long. Let's go around the outside of the building. Very cool. What I notice most about Padme's characterization is the diplomacy and the tact and the way that she approaches questions of morality and ethics. Mm-hmm. She and Shmi on Tatooine in the first half of the movie have a conversation at the dinner table about slavery. And it's it's clear, I can't remember the exact dialogue, but it's clear that Padme is almost trying to get her arms around the big picture of how slavery can still exist. Mm-hmm. And Shmi says it's because we're outside of the Republic and and there's no inf- there's no anti-slavery influence here. And in every interaction that Padme has with an adult or someone who has more power than her, it's clear that she has a really intricate knowledge of tact, politics, and diplomacy, and is pretty adept at influencing situations to get her way. Yeah, very much so. But she also displays uh, an intricate grasp of tactics. And the real thing is knowing the exact moment to strike the rhythm and that's talked about by like uh, Mushashi and Sun Tzu is that that you have to find the exact moment to strike the opponent as well mm. the, out of all the plans in like all of Star Wars this is the one that like actually works and it has less force influence than in any of the other ones you know like in later movies they're like oh just throw some Jedi at it or throw Luke Skywalker at it and the problem will work out fine but in this one she's like what do I have as my assets? I got myself. I got some pilots. I got a bunch of Gungans. Let's throw them every which way. I, I very much admired her in the second half of the movie. And I think she went from being... Um, a sulky teenager. Yeah, a sulky teenager into someone who gets stuff done. And I, I quite enjoy how she rolled in the second half of the movie. It was very good. How old do you think she's supposed to be? 14? No, she's supposed to be like 16 or something, maybe 14. But yeah, she was the duly elected queen. I don't know. Like, and how does a queen even get elected? Like, It's not even the child queen part of it. It's that I forgot how significant the age gap between Anakin and Padme is. Yeah. And that's like, does relativity even exists in the star wars universe because you know if if she's been traveling around a whole bunch and he's been staying put then they would catch up in age like who even knows the last thing that i want to say about padme does palpatine know that padme has a decoy that's an interesting question isn't it like who knows and who doesn't know that she's a decoy and the reason that I say that is because Palpatine has a little scene where he's talking to Newt Gunray mm-hmm. and he says, you'll find that the queen will be very easy to control. Mm-hmm. And then 
Padme and the the crew fly to Coruscant. Mm-hmm. They have a little dialogue and she surprises him mm-hmm. when she tells him that she's flying back to Naboo and that her fate will be the same as her people. And I, my headcanon is that Palpatine doesn't know that Padme has a decoy. So for the majority of his interactions with Queen Amidala, he's actually been speaking with her decoy. Mm-hmm. So the actual personality and leadership style of Padme is a mystery to him. And that's how she's able to outsmart him. I like it. It's a good headcanon. Uh, the only person I have 100% faith in knowing is R2. Because Padme is in charge of cleaning up R2. But then later on, R2 would have seen like them at different places. And he can definitely differentiate between humans not based off of their clothes. So I'm, I'm pretty sure R2 would know the difference. But R2 is not a snitch. Is he not? R2 never snitches on anybody. R2 knows everything in all the movies, and he never snitches on anyone. I feel like R2's a gossip. To whom? C-3PO. He just tells C-3PO C-3PO's naked. (laughs) That is a pretty salty thing to say to someone. He was stirring up trouble. He was stirring up trouble. So then the last element of the fight, before we wrap it all up with the final ending here, is the Gungan battle. What did you think of that? Besides the drama of watching a battle scene, I think what I appreciated most about the Gungan battle is actually the symbolic and political overtones, Mm -hmm. where it feels like the Gungans are equal partners in defending their planet against invasion. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it feels like they have been, their sovereignty has been recognized They have done their part as equal partners, and it feels triumphant and right that the victory parade ends with Padme handing the blaster ball. Ah, some sort of peace orb. It's probably not a jello ball full of danger like these in the battle. I was wondering. We're going to call it a peace orb. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to call it a peace ball. When Padme hands the peace ball to the leader of the Gungan Mm -hmm. people, and he says, peace. That really feels like a balance has been achieved between these two races on this planet, and I thought that was cool. They definitely did their part in the battle, which was to serve as a distraction, but they that was a very cool fight scene to watch because there had been nothing like that. Before, I mean, you've got CGI guys on one side, CGI guys on the other side, the very Wakanda-esque moment of the shields, the hand-to-hand combat, the droids. But then, yes, at the end, the unification of the Gungan people with the Naboo people. Very cool. When Jar Jar accidentally takes out, like, eight battle droids using another battle droid. That he's, like, tripping over. Yeah. That's pretty yeah. ridiculous. It was really fun. And that type of like that that feeling of haplessness that Jar Jar just has throughout because he also like released the balls that blew up a bunch of tanks and stuff and he's just he's just ridiculous. He is just lucky. I can see like that moment is I think why people dislike Jar Jar more. His his crazy insane clumsiness. Like that's what leads people to believe in like the Darth Jar Jar theory or something. Do you want to talk about Darth Jar Jar, Sam. A little bit. Okay, talk to me about Darth Jar Jar. So, all right. The the difference between canon and legends here is 
so there used to be the expanded universe and there used to be these different levels of canon um and it was always this amorphous blob of like what is canon and what isn't because the holiday special was canon but then it wasn't and it's like still kind of trashy because it takes place with like muppets you know like who even knows what's going on with that stuff then in 2014 disney pablo hidalgo took over and they uh took the whole star wars franchise and they cut everything out everything that wasn't a movie or one of the tv series that we're going to be talking about and that's where we get our thrust for this series this podcast is just what's canon there's also all sorts of crazy fan theories. There's the bigger Luke th- fan theory. There's the Darth R2 theory. And there's the Darth Jar Jar theory. And the Darth Jar Jar theory, I mean, it's it's a wish list. How much more compelling would this be if Jar Jar was actually a bad guy and just happened to be in the right moments? The fact that like he's got all these crazy Jedi moves just without a lightsaber. So you're talking about how all of Jar Jar's accidents seem to do something incredibly effective. Yes, but, you know, obviously not going anywhere, but it is, it's real funny. Sam has this little smile on his face where he clearly wants this to be true. (laughs) (laughs) I think it'd just be, it'd be a more compelling narrative arc for the Phantom Menace if they hadn't introduced the two bad guys in like literally the opening scene of the movie. When it's like, I'm Darth Sidious, and this is Darth Maul, and we're going to mess you up if you don't do what we want. It's like, okay, so which one of these guys is the actual Phantom here? Oh, well, we never finished the, the fight. So the fight goes on. They're separated by force fields. They're sprinting. There's running. Obi-Wan is caught behind the last force field as Qui-Gon charges into battle to fight Darth Maul. And Darth Maul aces him. Stabs him right through the chest. When I tell you that my scream of no exactly mimicked (laughs) Obi-Wan's scream of no, I am not exaggerating. Yeah, I believe you. I mean, it's it's an interesting thing because in... The original trilogy, Alec Guinness, Obi-Wan, is talking about how Yoda trained him. And presumably Yoda trained everyone in one way or the other. But what happened to Qui-Gon? And as you're watching Phantom Menace for the first time after watching the original trilogy, you're like, oh, that's what happened to Qui-Gon. He was a really cool dude. And he just got stabbed with the lightsaber. So there's something really interesting, kind of a blink or you miss it moment that happens. Mm -hmm. Maul and Qui-Gon are in the last stage of their battle, and Qui-Gon gets this really strange look on his face, and then Maul runs him through with a lightsaber, Mm -hmm. and in my headcanon, it almost feels like Qui-Gon had a flash of realization that he was in the exact wrong spot, Mm -hmm. and he had made a grave mistake, and it was going to be his last there is always that moment where, like, you're doing something, some physical activity, and you're like, I have made a mistake. I have to deal with the consequences of it. And I feel like for a Jedi who's using, using a lightsaber duel, you would have that moment and be like, I am out of my element, and this has been capitalized on, and this is a fight to the death. There is a really sweet poetic justice 
Obi-Wan falls down the pit, force jumps up, and at the same time calls Qui-Gon's lightsaber into his hand and kills Maul. Mm-hmm. And there's a sweet poetic justice, I think, in using Qui-Gon's lightsaber to finish the deed. For sure. I think something I want to talk about right before that, which is when Obi-Wan comes in, he is in, he's fully enraged. He's giving into his passion and is really easily defeated. And it's only when he's like, and, and thrown down the hole. And it's only when he is like calm again, that mm. he's able to fight. And that's what lets him do his, his cool guy move to take out. So there's something I said to you after we had seen perhaps the first episode one and episode two, Mm -hmm. where we were talking about the difference between the Jedi and the Sith. Mm -hmm. And I said, so the Sith lean into their emotions Mm -hmm. and they feel passion and rage and everything that they feel just serves to make them more powerful So what is so wrong about being a Sith? That sounds pretty great to me. Obviously, I have now seen the atrocities of the Sith. Like, I'm not trying to become a Sith over here. Note, listeners, that was after episode two, but before episode three that she said that. It really was. (laughs) I had to really, yeah, mistakes were made. But it's fascinating to me that when Obi-Wan leans into that side, it weakens him instead of strengthening him. Mm-hmm. And that is circling back to the moment at the beginning of this segment in the council chambers when Yoda asks, how do you feel? And Anakin says, I feel cold. And Mace Windu says, your thoughts turn to your mother. Or maybe it's Kiati Mundi. And Yoda says these pretty famous lines, which is that... Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. Exactly. It is only by like acceptance that you can defeat fear. And acceptance is often, to an outside observer, passionless, right? Because something will come up and you'll be like, oh, you know, my, my mentor was just slain. I'm going to rage out. And then the dude who feeds on rage just eats your lunch. It's only by following those lessons that your mentor teaches you that you can actually rise to the occasion. So Darth Maul gets his 50% off and uh, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan are lying there and Qui-Gon demands as his, as a dying man's wish that he takes Anakin under his wing. Okay, we have to talk about this. Yeah. Obi-Wan presses his forehead to Qui-Gon's in a moment of just pure grief Mm -hmm. and my little heart just cracked in two but here's the thing that stayed with me is that qui-gon is dying with a mission incomplete Mm. because he wanted to take anakin under his wing and do what he did for obi-wan for anakin but he can't and he now has to trust that he did the best job he possibly could to impart his values and his teaching into Obi-Wan because Obi-Wan is the only chance he has now of passing on his mentorship to the chosen one. And think about what that must have felt like. Yeah, it's a big leap of faith because also in the council chambers uh, before this, Qui-Gon said that Obi-Wan is ready 
and he can't learn anything more from Qui-Gon, which is a big um, endorsement, obviously. But is it the right thing? Is it true? Or is it more, you know, aspirational thinking on the part of Qui-Gon that he's like, I really want to train train the Chosen One, so Obi-Wan's ready. Yeah. And then to circle back to one of the recurring Star Wars themes, they they cremate uh, Qui-Gon. Yeah, I, I was called back to almost the Viking tradition of cremating the warriors who mm-hmm. fell in battle. And cremating someone, like putting their corpse in a bonfire, is uh, is pretty interesting. Uh, I don't know what, like, I mean, obviously it's not really science fiction in terms of, like, you have to pay attention to the rules of science. Because if you make a big bonfire and you throw your dead buddy in there, you just making a barbecue you know if you want to cremate someone you gotta get it you gotta get it really hot like a crematorium is like 2000 degrees so i don't know what they're what they're planning here but it is it occurs later on multiple times in the series that cremation is the accepted way of disposing of bodies and i think it's an interesting element uh it's a it's a recurring motif throughout star wars and in this order that we're watching this is the first time we see it of a body with flames looking up past it so, who's Bay this time? Who's on the Baywatch this episode? Living members only. I was going to say, and why is it Qui-Gon again? I mean, if you want to be Qui-Gon... How can it not be Qui-Gon? I feel like in the second half of the movie, Obi-Wan really rises, and so does Padme. Obi-Wan rises to the occasion, but Qui-Gon is stepping in as a father figure to Anakin in some really beautiful ways. Padme can be secondary Bay. Secondary Bay Padme. She can be Bay B. (laughs) Qui-Gon is Bay A. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, fun. Who's your Bay? Um, I think in the second half of the movie, it's going to be, uh, Captain Tanaka, because like there's a moment they're going down the hallway and he's like, and Padme's like, this is taking too slow. Captain, and Captain just blows a hole in the wall and he's like, ascension hooks, and he like climbs up. And he's just like, I don't like this plan. I don't even agree with this plan. I'm going to commit to this plan. I'm going to make this plan happen. I'm going to do it because it's my job. And I, I appreciate a, uh, I appreciate a workmanlike adventure in like, the Padme story is the most like D and D part of the story. You think it'd be the dudes with swords, but it's actually the dudes who are running around. Like, where is the throne room? Four stories above us. Let's go on the outside of the building. Like, that's <laughs> I like that. I enjoy that a lot. So he's he's my little micro bay. Padme throws him a blaster, and he just starts blasting. Yeah, like be like Captain Tanaka. Captain, he's like, got it. What would Captain Tanaka do? Exactly. Pull out a blaster, start blasting. Do you have any further insights that you want to talk about from the Star Wars experience from watching this movie? Yes. <laughs> and the insight is that I am not quite sure who thought the Senate was an effective way to run a galaxy-wide democratic system, 
but it seems really easy to get shouted down in the Senate. And I cannot believe that one white human male chancellor was succeeded by another white human male chancellor in a galaxy full of different creatures, species, aliens of all kinds. I literally cannot believe it. That's fair. My insight into the Star Wars system universe is that politics are the same out there as they are right here. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're also aliens, you know, they might even be different species, Valorum and and Palpatine. They just look human because there's humans everywhere in the Star Wars universe, but that's just making excuses for something which was cutting and insightful. What kind of insights did you get into the Star Wars universe? From the second half, this time around, it felt like the Gungan fight was doing its job and that it is more of a set piece in a like a propaganda set piece and ambush as opposed to what as opposed to an actual tactical military maneuver, which is just nonsensical as because, you know, fighting robots underwater, that is the best spot to fight robots. <laughs> Interesting. Um yeah, I think that's it. Just seeing how things play ahead. Sometimes things need to play ahead in the way they play ahead. And and you have big players. You got Palpatine, you've got Padme, and they're moving pieces to get the result they want. What are you looking forward to for next time? Having seen the movies, I'm really excited because episode two is pretty action-packed. It's got a lot of fun things going on. Some really fun segments and sections and honestly i'm more excited for the precipitation of episode two into the events known as the clone wars because i think that that is peak star wars right there and it starts at the beginning of episode two when things start going pretty crazy I'm excited to dig into Anakin's character in episode two, because we are getting a more grown up Anakin. Mm -hmm. The relationship between Obi-Wan and Anakin is more developed. There are even more fault lines. I am really excited to see that with more Star Wars knowledge under my belt than the first time I saw it. Cool. That's all we got for today. find us on social media growing up skywalker if you like the show please leave us a review on your podcast app or send it to a friend or loved one or in my case like my parents because they don't know they don't know a, a gungan from a gonk droid oh so <laughs> if you like to get access to fun goodies including having your name read on the show you can find us on, on patreon as well and finally as always if you have any questions please send us a listener holocron at growingupskywalker at gmail.com. We promise we read every single one and we can't wait to hear your thoughts and opinions and questions. Tune in next Tuesday for Back of the Clones, part, part one. one. Yeah. Thanks, y'all. Thank you.